0: welcome to another episode of the entangling web3 podcast alec how are you doing today mate
1: i am very good i'm very good it's very dark these days so i've got nothing better to do than be recording podcasts with you jack how are you
0: yeah, not not too bad. Thanks, mate. I'm uh, all good. Yeah, so today we are, uh, we, we're we kind of going on an interesting journey, I think, because you and I have both for quite a while been excited to talk about this concept of DeFi or decentralized finance. And then we started planning an episode for this to talk about it. And we realized, actually, we might have to spend some time talking about TradFi first, right? Traditional finance or CFI, centralized finance, whatever you want to call it, just the old financial world, because... So much of what DeFi is doing is building on or, or, or modifying concepts from existing finance. So, yeah, I think we're going to be on a kind of multi-episode arc here, right? Where we, we talk about TradFi to build us up to, uh, to understanding DeFi a little bit more.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think for context, I just want to say this is a very complicated topic, right? It's like yeah. we planned to do this a while ago. and We're like, you know what? We'll just record it next week. That'll be fine and then you start looking into it you start looking into all that, all the different episodes out there all the different books out there all the different articles and newsletters and it is complicated there are so many different angles to this you kind of just think of traditional finance as just being banks and loans and super simple and bitcoin's going to replace everything and all this kind of stuff but there it's so multifaceted it's so complex and i think it's really important for us to deep dive like you said into traditional finance specifically to understand what's going on right now, because it's so much more than just banking and removing some intermediaries, right? We talk about the opportunities of DeFi. there's just, yeah, it's really, really monolithic in a lot of ways. And I think this is going to be quite interesting. I learned a lot in the research for this, and I'm sure we're both going to learn a lot more as we kind of go into this episode.
0: Yeah, I don't know about you, Alec. I feel like I've done the learning in reverse here. I feel like I knew a lot more about DeFi than I did <laughs> the traditional financial world. And then in preparation for this, I've actually understood a lot more about the old world. So yeah, why don't we why don't we start from the beginning then and try and basically give a very quick overview of traditional finance and also of decentralized finance as a starting point. And then maybe let's just drill down some specific concepts after that.
1: Yeah, I mean that makes sense. When most people think of traditional financial institutes and players and actors, they think of banks, right? you know, retail banks, whatever it is, you know, Santander, HSBC, that's how most people, I'd say most normal people like you or I interact with the TradFi world. And, you know, banks are big business, obviously, worth something like $5 trillion Is uh, And then not to be um, kind of uh, misunderstood as central banks, here we're talking about, um, I guess, private banks, normal banks, like the day-to-day commercial banks that, that we're speaking of. We had a, a whole episode on central banks, which are different yeah exactly and not not just
0: banks as well but obviously we touched on in in the blackrock episode we talked a lot about blackrock as another player in traditional finance your kind of investment management firms and the other players involved in traditional finance but kind of my understanding at a very high level is you know traditional finance is about anything you need to do with money whether that's saving it or investing it growing it i mean the vast majority of finance tends to be about growing your money you know beyond the basic case of securing and storing and saving your money in whatever form it is most of finance is really geared towards you know making profit and how do you how do you make your capital work for you that's basically what how people tend to describe it and capital obviously meaning just basically the money you have as, a, as an individual or a company you want to grow it using uh, the range of different asset classes different financial products which we'll get into that for me is just what the, the traditional finance world is
1: yeah I, I, and I completely agree and when most people think of traditional finance they think of like fat lazy monopolies right and we said that this you know the point of this is to gear ourselves up to to defy and what the the opportunities are there and when people think of tradfi they think of high fees slow transactions limited accessibility all these kind of lack of transparency things financial crashes all this stuff and this is the opportunity that is presented to defy and like you say we are going to dial into it a lot more but The philosophy of DeFi in relation to TradFi is shifting the kind of the emphasis or the focus, the need from centralized entities like banks, like one you just mentioned, to technology and technologically driven solutions. Um, And the foundation of that is all the technology we're going to speak about, blockchain technology, smart contracts, crowdfunding, all this stuff. And this is big business. I think um, it's really important to understand, like setting the tone here, that DeFi is worth around 80 billion right now. And it's forecasted to be absolutely huge over the next five to 10 years. But yeah, back to banks. Like you said, banks at the absolute basic level, the idea is to take in funds and we'll call it deposits, um, which is effectively people's money and pull them together and lend that money to people who need funds. So banks are the definition of an intermediary between depositors and borrowers. And that's one of the primary kind of I guess, um, I guess defining characteristics of of banks.
0: Yeah, exactly. And when you when you kind of when you or I as a kind of normal uh, retail consumer of, of banking products or banking services, that's our relationship with them. You tend to deposit money and you 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 might typically have an interest rate on the on the money you store there. Well, how do they generate that interest rate? That's by going and reinvesting your money in, in other uh, you know enterprises that's when they there's kind of the front office where they're dealing with you as a customer and they they take in your money um effectively as a as a service to give you returns but then how they generate those returns is a whole other world right and that's where you get into the more kind of complex um parts of the financial world which involve the other institutions you know in the background like I said your investment funds your exchanges for exchanging assets that kind of thing but yeah the banks are our basically I would say
1: our interface for most people mm. into into finance. And let's not like, you know, throw too much crap at banks. Like everyone, we're kind of describing them as these lazy, monolithic, super slow, sluggish players, but they are shifting towards, you know, digitalization, technology, all this kind of stuff. I think one of the stats I saw was that 3.6 billion people would be using some form of digital banking by 2024. And this is, um yeah, I think that's like a, a big opportunity. And more and more, we're seeing banks partnering with fintech and don't even get me started. And what fintech is i thought fintech was some crazy advanced technology until one of my friends who works in fintech was like oh no i just do uh you know online banking apps and i'm like oh okay that's what fintech is but yeah so the stat is that 81 percent of traditional banks and they're partnering with fintech companies to actually push this you know digitalization digital transformation agenda Yeah, exactly and and you know banks
0: as you said are starting to look more like tech companies or fintech companies you know, they were called challenger banks. I don't think they are so much anymore. Like you're Starling the Monzo in the UK. I think Starling's been voted the best British bank for the last kind of few years. So th- these banks are becoming more modernized, and how they offer their products to consumers is looking a little bit more like the Web3 world, to be honest. And the line is blurring. You have banks also offering Web3 products, which we'll kind of come on to. But yeah, that, they're they're the kind of major player for consumers kind of, you know, uh, storing their money and hoping for a return and that kind of thing. Then yeah. the other major player, as you said, was kind of your, you know, your stock markets and exchanges, right? So that's where maybe you want to kind of do something more, more, more interesting. You want to be more active in your, uh, how, how you get returns and you don't want to be kind of passively generating income uh, on top of your savings through a bank. Then you go to a stock market. You'd start trying to you know, uh, make these bets on, uh, on, on company stocks and things, right?
1: Yeah exactly that's the big number 2 kind of actor in the ecosystem here we've got the i mean stock market exchanges they're just like public marketplaces you know like facebook marketplaces if you will where companies can raise money by selling shares investors can buy and sell those shares and i guess that the stock markets and exchanges help in setting the prices for these shares based on You know demand and supply. I guess we're going to say the terms demand and supply over and over again during this. Um, they provide a way for investors to easily convert their shares into cash, and they're weirdly quite a good indicator of the economy's health, apparently. Um, and additionally, I guess they ensure the companies, um, the companies follow certain rules and standards. You know, promoting fair play and transparency. And this is a big thing around you know traditional versus DeFi is the idea of you know standards, rules, how you ensure that assets or, you know, companies on these exchanges actually do play ball properly and actually aren't, you know, doing illegal, illicit things. And this is very relevant with a lot of the things that's been happening lately with, you know, FTX, Binance. I think we'll talk about this a bit later, but that's a very important aspect of these as well.
0: Yeah, I think that's the key is you said, as you said, access to consumers, you know, whether that be retail consumers like URI or or companies wanting to, you know, diversify on, on their balance sheet what other companies they hold, they hold stocks in your stock markets and stock exchanges are the kind of the access point for you and they are generally heavily regulated so you know the big examples of stock exchanges you've got new york stock exchange london stock exchange the nasdaq shanghai stock exchange these are all kind of very well known even if you if you've never invested you know directly on a stock exchange you'll still know those names there are whole uh, news channels dedicated to the movements on them and they're all subject to heavy regulation and not just the exchanges themselves but as you said companies who want to be listed and as, as we call it as a public mm. company if you can be bought and sold have your shares bought and sold by the public there are very stringent listing requirements and i just want to call out one kind of nice little segue into the web3 world is is with something like coinbase you know the the detail they had to go through because that was probably the biggest marquee listing we've had so far of a, of a web3 company on, on a traditional stock exchange to get mm. listed they had to put in all sorts of declarations and risks and things and one of the risks they are you aware of this one i like the the risk they put in which is really kind, no. of, kind of funny to me what what is it so they put in as one of the big disclosures a huge risk would be if if the identity of satoshi nakamoto was revealed right really if, if, yeah yeah if satoshi comes back then they that's one of the things they identified as their their major risk so even they had to had to put, put that in the listing
1: I mean, that's like, there's layers to that. I mean, it's like Inception kind of complexity. It's like Coinbase is an exchange. Is it a Web 2 or a Web 3 exchange? Debatable. It's kind of like this Web mm. 2.5 where it gives you access to Web 3 assets, but it does it in a very centralized Web 2 way. And that's that exchange is listed on an exchange. <laughs> it's like yeah. to, to be listed, you have to hit all these regulatory standards that Coinbase itself doesn't really implement. And it just like blows my mind a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting world. And... You also have kind of lots of other different
0: types of exchange. As you said, um, Coinbase itself is, I I think we'll get onto the types of asset, but that's more of like an alternative assets exchange, right? Because they deal primarily in crypto assets like we've we've covered in the the past, like Bitcoin and and tokens on top. You also then have so stock stock exchanges, alternative exchanges like Web3 and then derivatives exchanges. So trading contracts about to go one level deeper into the inception analogy you know, trading contracts about assets. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, uh, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, CME, would deal in, for example. So, yeah, it's as soon as you go below below the service level, you start thinking, oh, my God, there are all these different strange variations on on trading.
1: Um, It's ridiculous. Like having debts and then betting on debts and then debts, betting on debts. Like, it's ridiculous. It's like just terminology for the sake of terminology and complexity for the sake of complexity. Um, I think, yeah, one of the interesting things about the stock market, generally in like say the last decade or so is that it's experienced growth like much more, I mean it's always growth right but the economy's always growth, that's the point of capitalism but it's much more growth than it has been previously and much more volatility because they've opened it up to standard retail participation which is you know normal everyday users like you or I who may be a bit more kind of fickle with our investments or a bit more uh, risk averse potentially, you know I see something in the news saying Donald Trump's been elected or something like this, I'm like well get all my stocks out quickly because I'm scared the economy's going to tank or whatever it is so that's an interesting thing is there's more volatility in stock markets generally and another one is all these ipos we're seeing like lots of tech ipos like that that the the biggest news all the time like obviously coinbase's ipo was a, an absolute fiasco like big money everywhere and exchanges are facing bigger and bigger regulations for new listings because of you know market manipulation all these things it's not just say the defi sectors that are coming under say more regulatory scrutiny but it's also tradfi because of all these probably mostly because of all these tech companies that are listing
0: yeah, and maybe we should just say IPO. We've both used the term now means kind of initial public offering, to so the first time your stocks are floated on a public stock exchange. I actually heard the term ICO before I ever, ever heard IPO, which is the kind of Web three equivalent and and oh. uh, much more maligned, the initial coin offering. Where uh, I don't know if you, I don't want to spoil. I won't spoil it. Actually, there's a TV show about technology that used this in quite a funny way, but essentially companies in the past and and still to the, to an extent do now. Have tried to raise funds against tokens of of a new blockchain, for mm. example, that they're issuing, and and they actually instead of issuing shares in the company, they're issuing a share of or a number of tokens, right? And that's a whole nother world. That's very much alternative assets. That's not as hev- nowhere near as heavily regulated right now. But yeah, it's just worth mentioning. You still have these analogs already creeping in between uh, tradfi and and uh, and defi.
1: Yeah. So that's the the first two big um, actors that we've spoken about, banks and stock markets slash exchanges. And the third one, which is another really big one, is investment and asset management firms. And I mean, these are companies that effectively handle money for individuals and organizations probably using stock markets and exchanges as, as we've just spoken about but these in my mind are the definition of middlemen in a lot of ways like the the aim of them is to you know grow people's money by investing it in in stocks and, and real estate so they tend to do it on behalf of their clients tend to be experts in the field and you know i give 10 pound to whoever it is a jp morgan of the world or something like this and they promise to give me one percent return and they make a long margin on that but these these are big big players that handle it's not like a you know, small companies, they are trillion dollar companies or multi-billion dollar companies a lot of the time.
0: Yeah. And it's very big business. Obviously, it's where you make the most money. If you've got a maths degree or a science degree, that's where you want to end up because that's where all the money is, right? Because you have these huge teams of people. And and this is what you'll often see much maligned in the, in, in, in media and films and stuff is you have these people at these trading desks and and, and building trading strategies, right? So how do I best? Mm. They call it, I think they call it alpha. Is how do you alpha is your improvement on the general market how do you get more returns than the average person who puts their money into the s p 500 right and it's a highly specialized thing and it's also becoming much more automated and and actually much more ai led now we we mentioned in a previous episode someone who moved their entire investment management firm to using artificial intelligence and algorithmically trading assets so it's a huge business and you know you will have heard of a lot of the names like you as we said blackrock is the biggest asset management firm in the world you also have like your vanguard you see them advertising all the time on tv as like Mm -hmm. a consumer focused asset management firm and then you also have things like your pension funds so wherever your pension is going every month say something like an aviva they're effectively managing those funds for you until you retire um, trying to reinvest those funds as well as possible to make sure you have more when you retire than you put in
1: yeah and i think like you say, it's big business, this kind of stuff. Like I kind of have maybe thrown them off as a middlemen, and they don't add much value, but it will be really interesting to see, like you said, what happens to these businesses when AI becomes the norm and there's like open source models that are just like the optimum way to get returns on investment, like, because Is it like a a net zero, net sum game, like zero sum game type thing, where it's like if everyone's doing the optimum strategy all the time, how can anyone make money on this? Like, will it just defeat the idea Mm -hmm. of these investment firms if there's just an open source protocol that is the optimum investment strategy? You no longer have people competing as people. This, I mean, this is an an interesting kind of topic, Mm -hmm. but maybe one that's slightly outside the remit of this this talk. Yeah, well, I think it's important though as well because you're saying
0: open source, but these companies, the strategies they build are highly Secretive. They're obviously like a huge, they're the main IP arguably that these these investment management firms have is the strategies they're using. They don't make them public for obvious reasons. Mm. And there's kind of a difference there between in the Web3 world where we have more transparent open protocols, but you still do have people trying to make a buck. You have traditional investment management firms trying to make a buck off uh, alternative assets like Web3 uh, digital assets. So yeah, it, it, there is a different, there's a bit of a blur there between the, the two worlds. Um, speaking of asset classes, I think we've thrown around a couple of them so far. We should probably define them a, a bit better before we go any deeper, right? So there's kind of four or five that we, we should probably cover. There are, there are like hundreds of asset classes, yeah. but I think there's if we just hone in on a few, that, that should give us a decent
1: grounding, I think. Now we're getting to the real meat of the episode. This is the really exciting stuff for everyone at home. Um, Yeah, sure. Let's jump into this. So I think the big one, well, one of the big ones, I guess, probably one of the more complicated ones as well, is securities. Um, So securities are financial investments like stocks and bonds, where you're essentially buying a small piece of a company or lending money to someone in exchange for interest. And really importantly, they're not physical things. They just represent a financial agreement like to kind of keep it layman, which always helps with me is that they're like tickets that you buy that can either represent, you know, a tiny piece of a company or a small loan that you would give to someone.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it, it is quite an abstract definition. I always find myself fumbling around when I think of, you know, what is a security, but
1: it, it is very broad
0: and there's lots of different subdivisions of it, which we won't kind of go into too much detail. But again, one of the important things is that securities are highly regulated. So you know because they're so abstract and as you said they're, they're talking about taking a small piece of a company or taking a loan from the in a government bond or something they are very very heavily regulated we've mentioned the securities and exchange commission of america and there is a very very broad definition they use which is another link back to web3 that i'll, I'll bring in but the way you classify a security normally is something called the harry test right and they basically say if this asset or, or contract or whatever the financial thing is, the financial product. If it, if it is an investment of money, well, that's you know basically all of them in a common enterprise. So something that has a common goal, like a company, um, for example, with an expectation of return. Well, as we've said, you're always expecting a return when you put money in these things. And then there's actions on a third party to generate those returns. Then it's classified as a security. And there's been a lot of debate playing out, as we've seen recently in the media with the SEC and uh, Coinbase and mm. uh, you know, other, other crypto projects like Ripple about the definition of digital assets and Web3 assets. You know, are they securities or not? Because it
1: looks like a lot of them could be satisfying those four criteria, but it's not completely clear and i guess the important thing around like why actually people care about this is mostly because of the regulation you come under if you are a security it's a bit more stringent like you just said but also the tax around that right if something's classified okay. as a security then you're more heavily taxed versus other asset classes and i think i think one of the main arguments from my understanding was around you know whether things like ethereum are securities and it all came down to was it due to the actions of a third party slash the common enterprise yeah. once like are there people that can manipulate this asset class for example and they said ethereum that, that actually is the case like people do control the agenda and how it works and things like this whereas bitcoin it seemed to be that they, they inferred the sec inferred that it's much more open than that and it's really difficult there's no one market manipulator it's very hard for them to do that so it actually doesn't kind of classify as security is that correct uh, I believe so,
0: so far, but who knows what will change in the future if the if the <laughs> definitions will shift. And actually, that's, that's one of the reasons I mentioned the ICOs before as well, because that's one of the reasons lots of companies that did offer these ICOs actually ended up violating these securities laws because they were selling uh, tokens in expectation of profit of that company or that blockchain protocol. Uh, working mm-hmm. to make them a return right so they effectively were unregistered securities because they didn't register with the, the sec so we've seen lots of examples of people falling afoul of that of that definition already but yeah we could talk about it for an hour about securities but um <laughs>
1: that's the kind of the high level please don't please don't talk for an hour about securities <laughs> um so you say yeah, that securities done and dusted to an extent the next one much more easy to understand the one that i get personally commodities these are just physical goods like oil, gold, wheat, you know, when you invest in commodities, you're investing in actual products that have a, a tangible presence, right? They can be bought or sold in markets, for example. And I think they're often used by, you know, who's invested in wheat, for example. That's the question I asked. They're often invested or used by investors to protect against inflation or, or market fluctuations, mm. right? As their value isn't really as kind of um, moves differently to say stocks and bonds, for example. You know, you always need wheat. It's pretty stable.
0: Yeah, and uh, you're right. I think especially in the precious metals or things like gold, silver, platinum, uranium. I've also heard, yeah, you know, uh, as an example of what kind of these commodities that are potentially highly liquidative, but also you know the gold, platinum, silver, very stable in value, seen as a good hedge against inflation uh, and things like that. And one interesting thing about commodities is that you know you think of them as physical assets, but even they can be traded in kind of non-standard ways. So you can either buy them directly you know OTC they call it over the counter so you basically have actual marketplaces for this you know go go going to a physical market to buy them or and is i think it's more commonly done now um, by lots of these financial management companies is you'll buy what's called futures contracts or derivatives and derivatives we'll come on to but kind of these are these are these are contracts based on that underlying value right of of the asset that's been in in motion and we've mentioned the CME Chicago Mercantile Exchange that's the kind of place you can go to buy and sell through these contracts. But mm. I've heard, you know, people doing this with like the price of oil barrels while they're in transit from the um. source to the destination place. Right. People this is crazy to me. People buy and sell contracts for the oil barrels while they're in transit because you will have all these different risks associated and the price can change a lot. While they're, while they're on the boat. So it's, it's fascinating, but a little bit scary to me.
1: It's ridiculous. Can nothing be simple? Like you're trying to find a commodity or something you can use and then people are betting on the future value versus the debt associated with it. Like why is financial services, why is TradFi so complex? I think, unfortunately, it's kind of important for us to understand because these are the opportunities that DeFi presents in reducing that complexity remove well adding to the transparency and preventing you know some of the issues that we'll talk about a bit later that have come about because of the complexity that's involved in this kind of stuff yeah exactly and uh, I, th- I think we'll there also
0: will come on to some kind of issues with defi as well because whenever you're talking about things like commodities you have physical tangible goods then you have the question how do you actually connect those to the digital world and things get a lot more complex.
1: As one thing I want to say on this, this kind of gets my um, grinds my gears, is around gold and like you know the intrinsic value that people say you know oh yeah uh, well you know what's it called Bitcoin's never going to replace the gold standard because gold has an intrinsic value and Bitcoin doesn't have an intrinsic value. And like yeah, gold is some used of a precious metal and like semiconductors sometimes and engines and all this kind of stuff. But really, it's like a cultural kind of um, association and prioritization of gold. That's just come about over thousands of years. And this intrinsic value is actually kind of, I guess, quite cultural. It's kind of been put on it. And that really the intrinsic value is actually kind of maybe more metaphorical and ephemeral and all this kind of stuff. I was going to say, that's a good point from the Peter Griffin School of Economics, there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I think my point here is that it's actually not too, I'm not sure that. Bitcoin should replace the gold standard. That's not really what it was intended for, right? It was this peer-to-peer digital cash system. But I, I don't think it's too big a leap for Bitcoin to actually you know, be this potential holder value that would replace gold for a lot of the reasons we've spoken about previously. And this kind of intrinsic value that people hold gold up because of is really just something that's been around for thousands of years that people trust in it and think it's never going to change, right?
0: Yeah, exactly, and you know, there's a famous kind of joke, but it's true. You know, if an a meteorite crashed to Earth that was full of gold, then our 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 trust in in the value of gold and would completely dissipate overnight. Mm-hmm. So it's not completely faultless. And I, I agree with your your kind of idea, right? That you know, Bitcoin could fulfill a lot of these properties, and that is also why, as we said, BlackRock is is looking at. Um, The ETF because it's it's being starting to be treated like all these other kind of traditional financial products as well.
1: Okay, so big number three, cash. We've done a whole episode on cash and digital cash. So if you don't know what cash is, I recommend go listening to that episode. (laughs) Yeah, and we don't need a nice throwback.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, you have different forms of cash. You have things like cash equivalents, essentially just liquid assets you can convert into cash, but. I
1: think a very uninteresting thing for us to talk about. So maybe we'll just skip over that one. Yeah, exactly. So I think number four is a bit more interesting. Well, not more interesting, but kind of it's easier, maybe easy to understand initially. Real estate, like real estate investment is simple to understand. You know, when it's direct ownership, I own my house. That's an investment. That's an asset, right? I, I think actually one of the things I did want to talk about on this is the financialization, if that's a word of real estate, you know, particularly through mortgage-backed securities. And now we're starting to have overlap between the different asset classes and some of the complexities you mentioned earlier. And this, you know, mortgage-backed securities introduced layers of complexity and risk. And for anyone that um, was around for the financial crash in 2008, as depicted in the big short, which I would highly recommend. They'll explain it much better than I ever could. I mean, this is one of the the complexity and the risks that I'm about to talk about is actually one of the reasons that led to the financial crash of 2008. And, um, you know, effectively what happened was home mortgages were bundled together and sold as securities, financial products to investors. And the problem was that the lack of transparency and really understanding of these bundles Oh, and actually the risk of the bundles being much higher and the quality being much lower of the debt that was associated with these, these bundles um, created a lot of confusion. And, um, you know, owning a security like these mortgage bundles is like it's kind of like owning a, a financial paper that represents um, a mortgage payment. And it was actually really far removed from the realities of the housing market. And this you know, complex financial engineering really led to a disconnect between reality and the financial state, and the lack of transparency really played like a massive role in the financial crash of 2008. And the, the reason I uh, talk about this is because, again, this is another huge opportunity for DeFi generally to create you know, more transparency, more understanding, and hopefully remove some of the complexity that's involved in these crazy things like mortgage-backed securities that I hate the idea of.
0: Yeah, I think I, I would also recommend going
1: to watch um, The Big Short
0: because, yeah, it, it shows you how the complexity of building assets on assets and derivatives of derivatives is can be quite dangerous, especially when you have this kind of information asymmetry. You have these private asset mm. managers all trying to make that alpha on on the underlying assets. Um, and, and I think, yeah, that, that shows part of what we're striving towards in, in the DeFi world is to have more transparency over these protocols. There's a kind of analog of this called composability in Web3, where you, you build things on top of each other, but mm-hmm. you actually can see the underlying protocols for all of them at the same time. So we'll definitely come back to that one. But the other part I'd like to mention there is with the big short and what happened in the big financial crash of 2008 is that you you saw some of these big players like the Lehman Brothers you know, going under, which were trusted, effectively, financial advisors, and asset managers. So it shows that things can go wrong. And when they go wrong in, in the TradFi world, they tend to go very, very wrong. And it ends up being the consumers holding the bag. And I don't think that's completely solved by any means in the DeFi world, especially not now, maybe in the future. But yeah, it, it shows that there are problems that to be solved. There is a good motivation for moving to, to the DeFi model of things, I think.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that like, the information asymmetry because in you know the big short specifically they really highlight that big players like Goldman Sachs knew that it was coming and mm-hmm. they knew the financial crash was about to happen and what they did was they put it off to everyday consumers like you or I to say okay we actually know this is going to happen mostly because we've caused it to happen but now we see it we're going to give it to other people give it to everyday users and let them pay the burden of the financial crash that we have in part caused and I think yeah, I'm not saying blockchain is the answer, but I think the principles and philosophy of DeFi actually should really combat that in a, in a lot of cases. Hopefully,
0: yeah, exactly. It, it definitely shows that the system can be improved, right? Um, and that kind of does bring us on to the last major classification I mentioned earlier as well: alternative investments. This is a lot of these things are um, there are traditional alternative investments. So like things like what hedge funds do and and private equity firms taking a a large majority stake in a company, improving it, that kind of thing, but also things like art collectibles, anything that's not a standard kind of form of investment uh, um, along the lines of the other categories we mentioned comes under this alternative investment and they have a very different risk reward profile. You know, there are very different risks associated with acquiring a company, trying to improve it or owning, uh, owning art and collectibles. But this also encompasses, you know, your your crypto assets, which again, as we know, have a very different risk reward profile to traditional assets, um, which are, you know, we had the high volatility. You have existential risk. You know, you don't know if this this blockchain will be here in ten years, for example. Um, and you also have your digital art, your digital collectibles now with your NFTs. So they're all kind of bundled into this new asset class.
1: Yeah, and like you say, much less regulated, which means the the risk return profile is very different to traditional assets. Um probably less accessible to like say normal people. Like it tends to be rich investors that buy collectibles and art. And I think we're already seeing the opportunities here with DeFi as well, with the NFT craze of Bored apes and all this kind of stuff that we've talked about many times on uh, on this podcast, but collectibles is no laughing matter. Like collectibles, generally the market is huge. We had Sean come on um a couple of weeks ago now and talking about access rights and and, and management of assets, and it is huge the collectibles market. Like I was shocked to hear how big. It is, and how important it is, and how it's like kind of so intrinsic to humans to really want to own things and collect as many as possible. i Don't know what it is. It's like the inner grok in me, the inner ugh in me, wanting to just have a collection of berries or whatever it is. But people love this stuff, and it's a huge market. It's a huge opportunity, and I think NFTs. I know we give them a lot of crap, but there is there is value to be had there for, for collectibles, especially with some of the utility things that we've talked about. I think previously in like in episode number three.
0: Yeah, I don't know about you. I still got my uh, some of my. Very rare Yu Gi Oh cards in a shoebox. Oh, yeah. so you never know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I, I think it's important that you mentioned <clears throat> that, you know, so I think alternative investments are things that have traditionally been much less accessible to the masses. But that, as you said, part of the DeFi movement and part of what we see where Web3 is actually making these much more accessible, making things, whether these alternative assets were illiquid or whether the marketplaces for them were a bit more opaque in the past, they're becoming more transparent. I mean, I was going to touch on later, but maybe it makes sense to you now. You know, the Constitution DAO is a great example uh, where these decentralized autonomous organizations—they—they they, they formed this to try and buy an original copy of the of the, of the U.S. Constitution, right? Which seems crazy, but they very <laughs> nearly did it, right? They—they they, they raised, I think it was around 47, 48 million dollars in Ethereum, and they, they very nearly managed to buy it. So it shows that that there was no way for an average person. To get anywhere near having only a piece of the of the constitution before that, and with with, with these new protocols, with this kind of way of collecting money together using Web three, they very nearly managed it. So it's it's very interesting, I think. What? what? I'm taken aback by that. You can sell the con. They're selling the constitution. I don't understand. <laughs> That's actually you must thing. have. <laughs> you must have been living under your grok rock, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, this happened um, no. at least a couple, maybe a couple of years ago now. But there was a, an original copy of the Constitution. So I think maybe there are a few copies made being sold in a Sotheby's auction. And they created this DAO with the sole purpose to buy that with this collection. And yeah, $47 mm. million dollars in ETH were raised and they were just outbid by, by someone else. But it's incredible to think that much money could be raised, you know, with any individual person just putting in their, their five pence, basically.
1: God, I imagine like America would be like an outrage if the Constitution <laughs> had been bought by this DAO. um okay so the next stage back to um the podcast i guess financial products here i think these are things that most people will understand you know an easy one banking products that's a a kind of quite everyday one that we all interact with you know we have savings accounts pretty low risk low return everyone kind of has done this you get a small interest rate potentially which is you know determined by the government and that is actually a a meat well it's actually not by the government necessarily, but it's a, it's a means for governments and banks to regulate things like inflation, right? If I up yeah. the interest rate, it encourages people to save, spend less, maybe I can decrease inflation by doing that. And the other way around also works. Where If I have a low interest rate, it encourages people to invest in stocks, trades, all this kind of stuff. Um, The other one that I think people are quite familiar with is check-ins accounts. These are day-to-day transactions typically, like pretty well understood, I think.
0: Yeah, exactly. So you, you're you're kind of, the, the first tranche of banking uh, or financial products is what we would, as we said, we interact with with banks, right? And whenever I hear the term financial products, I kind of think, "Oh, that sounds weird." Like, what what is a financial product? It's just money, right? Mm. But you know, we we do use them in our day to day lives. A savings account with with, with a with, even if it's a low rate of return, it's still a product. You're still putting in your money with expectation of return, as we kind of said that kind of thing. Then. If you move away to the kind of more complex things, and now we're kind of talking about, again, okay, not just what the institutions are, but what do they do? Then you have your investment products. So this is any way you'd invest in one of those asset classes that we mentioned, whether that be stocks and shares. So like a consumer typically you might know of something like Robinhood, right? As a, as a, mm. as a classic trading firm. Well, there's lots of these small mobile apps. You can now just very easily, surprisingly easily, uh, just, just ret- sign up and start buying stocks in. You might also have your your ISAs as well, your ISA accounts. So something like help to buy ISA in, uh, mm-hmm. in the UK, where you're putting in money. Again, some government influence there because you get a little bit more money from the government if you put it in to buy a house, that kind of thing. So it's the kind of thing that most people, are, even if you don't think of yourself as an investor, you may well have been involved in an investment product like that as well. And then obviously, as you mentioned, your hedge funds, private equity, all these other firms will have different types of investment products they are using or are offering as well.
1: And the big sexy one that we spoke about a few weeks ago was the BlackRock ETF, which is going to be an investment product for people to, you know, put their fear in and BlackRock will invest in Bitcoin potentially, assuming that gets approved. Let's see what happens. Um, So that's another example of that. And that's kind of another um, way in which DeFi is moving into TradFi and this kind of this um, combination or integration of the two, which is quite exciting. Um, We've got insurance products. Doesn't everyone love talking about insurance products? Like Life insurance, health insurance, property. Um, but this is big business as well. There's like so much value to be derived from that. Insurance makes so much money. I can't remember. I had a fact somewhere. It's like hundreds of billions a year through um, insurance, just premiums and things like this. It's absolutely mental.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't want to spend long talking about it because it bores me to death. But it, it is huge <laughs> business, right? And you have, again, you mm-hmm. have structured products in insurance as well. You have things like reinsurance on top of insurance, that kind of stuff. So, again, very big business. And in some cases, obviously, it's also mandated, right? Mm-hmm. So, most of us, if you if you're driving a car in the UK, you will have had to buy an insurance product, your car insurance, or typically you'll buy a travel insurance if you go abroad as well. Obviously, not mandatory in that case, but. You know, it's something that you will have touched that as a financial product in, in your life as well. Um, yeah. And then, kind of the, one of the, the the other bigger, more interesting, but much scarier again, types of product is then your derivatives, right? And this is effectively anywhere you have a product that is not itself the underlying asset, but derives value from an underlying asset. So this is, you know, effectively betting on future price or movements of an asset without holding it directly.
1: Yeah, it's like, uh, how do I hear it described once? It's like, um, they're like bets, like you say, on how the price of something will change in the future. It's like imagine guessing like the score of a football game and placing a bet on it, but you're relating that to underlying assets. Um, exactly. it's quite a complicated thing and it's a bit abstract.
0: Yeah, but also I, I've seen, you know, quite popular in the UK is there's something called the share save scheme, whereby if you're a, a, a company that's publicly traded, then you can effectively, as an employee, you can put your money into this scheme, you take away a certain percentage of your, your salary each month, and it gives you an option. So that again, an option is one of these, these futures um, contracts, these derivative contracts. It gives you the option to buy the company's shares, so the company you work for, at a big discount in the future. So it says, okay, it's going to be up to 20% discount on the price you put in your money now for, I'd say, two or three years, and then at that date, in two or three years' time, then you have the option to buy the company stock at the originally agreed price. So this is what it means by giving you the option to buy at a certain price. And again, you know, you're hoping that the company stock has gone up because you've been a productive worker in that time. And 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 that's kind of a nice example because it's it shows where financial products can have a, a, a I think, a, a strong benefit, mm. not just for the company because. It incentivizes people to stay at the company, right? To get to see that two or three year period through. Mm-hmm. But it also incentivizes you as an employee to have skin in the game, right? Because you think, well, you know, my my investment in this product is going to be worth much more if we are successful in two or three years time. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of it's a nice example, I think, that you, is uh, is less demeaning of the financial industry.
1: <laughs> okay. And some other big concepts that we really need to talk about, because these become extremely relevant when we're going to talk about DeFi in the next episode. Um, the first one is market making. And as the, kind of, the name suggests, this is how you make a market. And it invi- involves like, continuously buying and selling all these wonderful financial instruments that we've been speaking about for the last half an hour to provide liquidity to the market, typically done by you know, big institutes like Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, New York Stock Exchange, all these kind of things. And you kind of, like I say, you can kind of think of this um, as like a store that always has what you want to buy and is willing to always buy what you want to sell. And they make sure there's always a product available for customers. So you have this kind of guarantee of service that is offered and that promotes a healthy economy, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, part of why there are so many financial products is you know, because there is a market for them and then also an incentive to make the market. And you know, one way I think about this is when you fire up your Robinhood app and you go click, I want to buy shares of Apple, right? Because you think mm-hmm. it's going to keep going up or Tesla or something. Then you need someone to sell you a share right? That's the market, mm. That how you make that market, how you make that happen. A lot of it is typically based on something called an order book where people are willing mm. to sell, people are willing to buy, and then your market maker is effectively you know, matching you up if it's an exchange or is acting as your counterparty, so uh, is willing to, to, to sell it directly to you. So again, you need some kind of whether peer-to-peer is possible, and that's what we said with the OTC, but typically you have some intermediary in the middle who's there to make that market for you.
1: Yeah. And I think this is like, when I kind of think of how this is actually beneficial, it's like with your Yu-Gi-Oh cards, for example, you try and sell uh, an alternative collectible. It's hard, right? You put it up on eBay, you kind of post it on forums, you have no one to sell it. And that's a big issue. But that was also the case with Bitcoin in the early days. When you're trying to buy Bitcoin, like it took so long to actually get it from someone who was willing to to sell it. And now it's like instance, which is well, I guess exciting, right? And it kind of, it bodes well for the future and shows how much importance there are on, on all these kind of um, DeFi applications. Yeah, exactly.
0: And then kind of highly related to market making is this idea of liquidity. And we we touched on this before, but one of the big features of any given market is how liquid it is. So how easily can you buy and sell? How much is there? Uh, how much availability is there of the asset that you want to buy or sell in the market? Because if no one's willing to sell, you have a highly illiquid asset or if no one is able to sell, I should probably say, then you have a highly liquid asset. So they're, they're intrinsically related to market making and having more market makers, better funded market makers will typically make your asset more liquid, but it's a huge topic in DeFi, right? And, and, and Web3 assets in general, because sometimes they're not liquid, but as we'll come on to, I guess, in the next episode, how you make that markets is becoming much more automated, right? And you have these very clever new ways of doing it in the Web3 world.
1: Yeah, so liquidity is how easily you can turn something into cash, right? If you can sell it quickly without the price dropping much, then it's considered very liquid. And that's very important for businesses and all this kind of stuff, right?
0: Yeah, but I would say not just cash, right? Because when we talk about it, I think that's like the, tra- the very traditional interpretation mm. of liquidity, yeah, is how, how, uh, how can I liquidate my asset into mm-hmm. something that I can pay my debts into the government, pay my taxes in. But in general, now we talk about liquidity as how easily can I swap one asset for another, right? That, that's kind of typically what it means, because as we'll see in, in Web3, liquidity is often referring to how do I swap crypto X with crypto Y, you know, that's, that's a big, big aspect
1: yeah i think that makes sense to me actually um and then the next thing that we have is counterparty risk um and counterparty risk is like the chance that a person or a company you're doing like a financial deal with might not be able to hold up their end of the bargain right like an example of this is not paying back the money that they owe you or not delivering good products you bought and i think this is really important to understand because you know you typically have when you are interacting with big enterprises in traditional ways you have a way of recourse you know if i sign a contract if you don't pay back your mortgage then the bank will take back your house and things like that and recourse is very important but this has been a bit of an issue maybe with say things like bitcoin you know it, because of like the things we talk about immutability um once bitcoin's there how do you get it back and like how do you actually do that on the blockchain you tend to do it at the exchange level and i think this is a very important thing because quite complicated to instill this in say smart contracts that we'll talk about in the next episode because like the reasons that you maybe don't pay back a loan can be very convoluted it's not just i didn't pay my loan on this day so then you take all the asset back there could be like very actual reasonable reasons why you didn't pay it back like say the server went down or the blockchain had a delay or you were put in the hospital with an accident so it's not as black and white as, as maybe people tend to think it is and maybe we always need will need some human element or some trusted intermediary to actually oversee and, and control these things in a certain way but this is something i think we'll speak about in a lot more detail when we talk about smart contracts in in, in the next episode
0: yeah and, and i would only add to that i kind of your counterparty risk can take many different forms right because it can your counterparty for any given financial product might be a different one uh, the the risk associated might be as you said for a different reason it might be reasonable in some cases um, it's why you're willing to 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 give your money to the bank and let them reinvest it in, in on your behalf. You have this idea of fractional reserve banking. They don't keep all the assets there all the time. And then you, you in bad cases you can have a run on the bank. But um, you know, one good example, even for the most basic financial product, which is your checking account, like you said, right, as a banking product. Recently on, on Black Friday, if you're an HSBC customer, you couldn't really access and transfer your funds. Because the app was down, right during Black Friday, so that's an example of your counterparty, effectively your bank, as as the person providing you the, the service of using your money, failing you in that case. It was only for a few hours, but it, it does go to show that this can apply in very, very different different circumstances with varying degrees of impact.
1: Yeah. So yeah, you know, Jack Davis, the biggest whale of Bitcoin, couldn't actually sell any of his assets when he needed to. It's, it's painful, painful to see. Um, okay. So we've talked a lot about TradFi and. The question is, why are we talking about TradFi? This is a Web3 podcast, right? And I think we've, we've hinted at it throughout, but all the challenges, the complexities and elements that we're speaking about here are opportunities for Web3 and opportunities for you know the DeFi companies that we're going to speak about in, in the next episode or even next two episodes. Like we kind of said that, it's um, there's a lot of inefficiencies, there's a lot of intermediaries, probably because of the complexities and uh, the information asymmetry that they want. And like I said, this is a real opportunity for DeFi application. And the real fundamental philosophy of DeFi is to shift the trust paradigm from centralized entities and unnecessary intermediaries more and more towards technology. And it's not to remove all intermediaries. I think that that that's ridiculous. And I think there always always will be some need for an intermediary in, in in some form, even if it's just a low reliance on them. But it's to create more transparency and more trust and more efficiency by moving that trust and dependency from those intermediaries to technology, and in a lot of cases to blockchain and smart contracts and all these wonderful and weird technologies that we'll talk about.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's very exactly the um, the philosophy of, of DeFi is yeah minimizing the amount of intermediaries you have, the trust involved, mitigating counterparty risk wherever possible, and it's like a very it's a very alluring proposition. I think in some cases you could be arguing that it's amplifying some of these risks, and we'll get into the detail. I think in in the next episode there have been some some, some significant failings in DeFi, but there's also some real innovation as well that we'll we'll talk about and go into the specifics of of DeFi, but yeah it was definitely i think necessary to to lay out the foundations of tradfi what is the problem what is what is the aim or the perceived problem that defi is trying to solve you know with how you provide these financial products how you create new types of asset classes how you let them interact and things and which parties provide those those services and, and products
1: for you i think like what i would say is it's, you know, people kind of think about it and it, the conversations I've seen is that it's DeFi is going to replace TradFi and it's this binary thing where we know TradFi and they'll just be DeFi. And it's like, that's ridiculous. Like, that's never going to be the case. Like, we're already seeing the terminology and we're using it ourselves like Web 2.5 and seeing how these kind of these big TradFi entities who have a monopoly in a lot of ways on the financial sector are moving more and more into DeFi. It's not going to be like, you know, overnight HSBC is going to move to a completely decentralized platform or You know, currencies will overnight move to CBDC or Bitcoin or wherever it is. But we're seeing the slow transition for, you know, and kind of little cases, little prototypes, little test cases being developed around the world, like a lot of central banks looking into CBDCs. That's an initial kind of move into the DeFi space in a lot of ways. But I mean, there's a lot of benefits to that. And it's great to see that, say, people like BlackRock and companies like BlackRock are seeing the value for investors, even if it's just value for them, they're seeing there's an investment opportunity there and there's opportunity that's what I want to emphasize big opportunity but there's also a lot of friction right what we've already mentioned mm-hmm. like some throughout this like the american sec versus bitcoin versus ethereum like what what is security what is commodity and like it's these technologies that are coming into these you know tr- tradfi ecosystems and people don't have a clue how to define them or how they fit into traditional kind of um, definitions. definitions even we've said it's like very abstract and difficult to actually define but people need this like people need this kind of this trust this confidence and this regulatory kind of um, certainty to move strongly into into these spaces. And then we've also seen a lot of like um, lawsuits, you know, Binance have recently been really screwed over in America, FTX, obviously. And I think this friction is also a really interesting, interesting kind of um, point or area to comment on as well.
0: Yeah, I think FTX is the is the really interesting one there because it kind of, it was the first time that, that the TradFi world really properly accepted and bought into the, the DeFi world and the Web3 world, and it ended pretty badly, obviously. And it shows the same problems of, of traditional finance can creep in, the information asymmetry, mm-hmm. the, the kind of underhanded operations of the companies in Web3 in some cases. So, But it also shows that the, the demand was there, right? It shows that you know, if all these big traditional finance companies could see the value in the proposition of DeFi in general, you know, if if FTX had operated as a good company, really, it, it, we'd all be hunky dory right now. It was very much a human failing, by the looks of things, uh, and not necessarily a technology failing. But uh, yeah, I think I think it's, it encapsulates the fact that there is demand for what DeFi is offering, and and we can learn from its mistakes, as you said. All these different things that have happened, um, we'll we'll cover some of these ex- kind of explicit examples of of those failings in the in the coming episodes. But yeah, I think. Maybe for now, it's we should leave it there and and say, you know, that is that is a, a, a crash course, a one hundred one into the in in the tradfi world, and hopefully uh-huh. should arm us with you know what we need to to talk about defi and, and and the specifics of it in the next few episodes. So, yeah, next time we should take a closer look at some of the defi protocols specifically and some of the projects we've mentioned. You know, things like Uniswap as well. We kind of very briefly touched on. Um, to understand how they work, also some of the risks and and concerns associated with them. But for now, Alec, I think we'll say thank you for listening, wherever you may be. Join us next time to untangle a little more of Web3.
1: Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web 3, produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions and comments on social media. And be
0: sure to follow us on your favourite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web 3.
1: The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.